Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. People want to know repetitively why I'm doing what I do. I have a show where I, it's called The Infallible Word, and we talk about the Bible verse by verse and only the Bible. Why am I doing this? I'm doing this because as a, an ex-Latter-day Saint, 40 years active in the church, I know, even having visited last week an LDS church, I know they do not teach Jesus Christ and a regenerative, regenerative relationship with him. And so this year we've dedicated to church history There's many of these things I really would prefer not to go through. They bore me. But I think that it's important for you to know the facts of church history so that if you decide to remain LDS and you truly believe you're a Christian, a born-again Christian, and you decide to remain LDS, fine. But you have to have all the facts. And that's why we're dedicating this time this year to church history. So we left off with Moroni in Joseph Smith's bedroom last week. Remember, it was the autumnal equinox. The date was September 21st, 22nd, 1823. Joseph Smith was 17 years old. Before we dive into an examination of the Book of Mormon itself, which I can't wait to do, we have to finish up Moroni's role in Joseph Smith receiving and translating the Book of Mormon. There are some rare teachings I'm going to share with you tonight that the church readily admits. Take these teachings and ask yourself, does this sound like it is something in the way God works, or does this sound like the way man might work? From September 1823 to June 1829, Moroni would make repeated visits to Joseph Smith, his special student. In January of 1922, an article ran in the Ensign, which is an LDS magazine, and it called Moroni Joseph Smith's tutor. Now remember, Moroni is an angel. It says, quote, it is impossible to determine the number of interviews Joseph had with Moroni, but 22 visits are often identified. As I have talked to LDS, my own family included, and asked them how many times did Moroni visit Joseph Smith before and after the golden plates were received, they all said two, three, four, five, six at the most. All right? We have at least 22. Working through Joseph Smith, the Lord brought about the translation and publication of the Book of Mormon in a remarkably short period of time, it says. As I said last week, six years is not a remarkably short amount of time for someone to have been talking about a record to the time that they produced a manuscript. Quote from the Church Magazine article, This was possible because the Lord prepared Joseph in his formative years for his role as a prophet to the Most High. To that end, the Lord had assigned Joseph a personal tutor named Moroni. Officially, the church supports Joseph Smith's claims that Moroni visited him repeatedly before, during, and after receiving the golden plates. Let's examine these visits, and I'm going to make some commentary. Now, understand on my commentary, it's my opinion. 
in this situation, I can't tell you if Moroni actually appeared to Joseph Smith or someone who called himself Moroni or an angel. I can't say one didn't, and I can't say that one did. All I can say is ask questions as to the way the story goes down relative to what the Bible teaches and to determine if this angel was necessarily good or bad. The first three visits we've talked about, that happened in Joseph Smith's bedroom, and it was repeated three times in the same night. It's important to understand that in folklore magic, that three visits of a spirit were vital because when a spirit appeared three times, it let the magician or the folklore believer know that this vision was real and that the spirit was genuine. If it appeared twice or once, it wasn't right. But when it appeared three times, then it was a legitimate visit of a spirit. And this ties right into the Book of Mormon uh, of Moroni coming to him. It says, quote, in church uh, article, he, meaning Moroni, told Joseph Smith of, of the Urim and Thummim, which had been prepared to help translate the Book of Mormon. Now, if you're a Bible reader, and if you understood the Bible back then, you know that the Urim and Thummim were called lights and, uh-oh, lights and intelligences, I think. And these were Hebrew words. And what they were were stones that were in a breastplate that the prophets would wear, okay? And on each stone was a name of the tribe of, one of the tribes of Israel. The Urim and Thummim is a strange thing in the Bible. We don't know exactly what it was. But what we do know is that the Urim and Thummim spoken of in Exodus 28.20 was not the Urim and Thummim that was supposed to be in the stone box with the gold plates that Joseph Smith could take out and he could look through them and translate. The Urim and Thummim to Joseph Smith was a stone, a seer stone that we've talked about in the past, and he could look in that stone and he could translate this gold plate record that he says he had. So... It says, going on, quote, Moroni also warned Joseph that when the time came to obtain the plates, that, that if he showed them to anyone not approved of the Lord, he would be destroyed. I've always wondered, why couldn't he show those plates to somebody? Why? What, what, would, what would the Lord's purpose be in him not being able to show the plates? And then later on, he showed them to three witnesses and then eight, and eight witnesses, which we're going to discuss at length that business. But why couldn't he show anybody? And why didn't the angel Moroni say to Joseph, you know what, Joseph, don't tell anybody about these plates either. Because when you tell them, you're going to have persecution and troubles and trial and everything else. So in the wisdom of the Lord, why didn't the Lord have the angel say to Joseph, tell no one you have them? Instead, he tells everybody, and he spends all kinds of time pretending he's got these plates he's dodging around with, and they're always trying to find them. They can never find them. Why didn't the angel say, hey, Joseph, avoid problems? Don't tell anybody either. Think this stuff through, okay? So we have the fourth, fourth visit that occurs the next day. Joseph Smith wakes up or never goes to sleep. He's very tired. He goes out to work with his father and brother in the field, and they see he's very tired, and they say, go home and go to sleep. As he's going home, he says he comes to a fence. He's too tired. He can't climb it. He falls in the, in the grass, and the angel Moroni appears to him again. This is the fourth visit, and he says, Joseph, go tell your dad what happened. Joseph does what he said, and his dad says, I believe you. Go get the plates. So Joseph then treks to the uh, Hill Cumorah, two or three miles away from his house. All right? I have a question that I don't know the answer to. If you know this, call us and tell us. I wonder if the Hill Cumorah was named the Hill Cumorah by the state of New York or if Joseph Smith named the Hill Cumorah the Hill Cumorah. I'm just curious about that. By the way, the LDS Church owns the Hill Cumorah, 
and uh, I don't know when they purchased it or how they got it, but it's theirs, and you can't go and do any excavating in it. So I think that's important to know. The um, fifth visit, on the west side of the hill Cumorah, near the top, Joseph located a large stone he was seeking. When he pried the stone lid away, he saw inside the box the sacred item spoken of by Moroni. Okay, so what's inside this box? Or where is this box? This was a stone box that was prepared by the ancient Nephites in the hill Cumorah, and in that stone box with a heavy stone lid over it were the golden plates. So Joseph says that the, Moroni took the golden plates back into heaven so that we can live by faith. Fine. Where's the stone box? We have a hill Cumorah that's a very small geographical area relative to that community. Why can't we just see the, the stone box? You can go to Israel and you can see the paved roads. You can see the Parthenon. You can see these historical places. You can see Golgotha, where they called it the place of the of the death. And you can see all these places as historical sites. Why can't we just see, just LDS Church, just let us see the stone box that Joseph pulled this from the earth. All right? We have no history that he destroyed it later, so I'm assuming that it would still be there. He tried, this is still quoting, he tried three times to take the place out of the box, but suffered progressively stronger shocks that deprived him of much of his natural strength until he exclaimed in frustration, why can I not obtain this book? Now I want you to know, if you read Michael Quinn's Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview, shocks from these spirits that lived in the earth to protect the treasure was very much part of folklore, magical folklore, that when you went to get their treasure, they had the power to shock you. All right, and Joseph Smith is reaching into the earth to get the gold plates, and he receives three shocks of greater and greater strength, and he finally cries out, how come I can't obtain the plates? And all of a sudden he hears, because you have not kept the commandments of the Lord. This uh, was the fifth time that Moroni had visited Joseph in a 24-hour period or less. He told Joseph to return one year later, and Moroni would meet him again at that spot. Now, why was one year important? Does the Lord say it's got to be one year to the day for you to do this thing? Does he operate in those ways? Maybe he does. If you can bring that up in the Bible, I might be mistaken. But this sounds more like another tie-in to magical practices. They had specific days. It had to be on the autumnal equinox when the heavens would speak to the inhabitants of the earth and tell them where uh, treasure was. And so uh, I think that it just points to more folklore in the uh, practices of Joseph Smith and the magic. Several secondhand accounts say that Joseph Smith was told by the angel Moroni that his brother Alvin had to accompany him to get the plates. And the problem was is Alvin died unexpectedly. And so they were thrown into a big problem. There are several references, which I can't verify. They're secondary and tertiary sources. But there are several references that said that he said Alvin had to be with him, and Alvin ups and dies. I don't know why the Lord couldn't foresee that Alvin was going to die and why he would request that Alvin be there, but nevertheless, this is part of the story. So every year at the Hill Cumorah, instructions are given to Joseph Smith to prepare him for the restoration. On visit number six, when Joseph went back to Cumorah on on, uh, the 22nd of September, one year later, he once again dislodged the stone and containing the plates. And while he was taking the plates out, he wondered to himself, is there any more treasures in that box? And he set the plates down. And he looked in there, and he looked back, and the plates were gone. Okay? And he asked the Lord, why have you taken these from me? And Moroni appeared and reminded him that he had not done as he was commanded. 
Now, according to Joseph Smith's mom, she said that Joseph had been told in a former revelation by the angel Moroni, quote, not to lay the plates down or put them for a moment out of his hands until he got into the house and deposited them in a chest or trunk, having a good lock and key. This is getting really uh, amazing, isn't it? You know, the plates can disappear, they can reappear, they can do this. The angel Moroni, wait till you hear what he can do with the plates later. But Joseph has to put them in the house under lock and key so no one else can see them. You see this thing kind of like spiraling out of control when it comes to the ability to pull off the con. I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend you. If Joseph Smith said, I received revelations and wrote the Book of Mormon, like Muhammad said, that the angel Gabriel came to him and gave him the Quran, I would respect it more. If Joseph Smith said, like the Jehovah's Witnesses said, that angels came and revealed things and that angels protect the Jehovah's Witness Church, I might believe it more. If, if Joseph had said, like Mary uh, Ellen G. White says of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, that angels played a part in their receiving their revelations, I might. But this stuff, it continues to grow. You have to know, does this lead you to truth? All right? So Joseph Smith lays the, sets the plates down, looks back in the box, looks back and they're gone. And this is all part of the little demon guys who live and they're guardians of treasure, and they can go, and if you don't protect your gold, they can steal it from you, and they can move it through the earth. And that you can see it in your seer stone in one place, and you go to dig for it, and they move it to another place. And so when you dig for it and it's gone, then you can say, ah, the guardian spirits got the gold, and they moved it. And that's what he is telling you here in this thing. He set it on the earth, he looked back, and it's gone. Why? Because when Joseph looked back into that box, the plates had been put back there. And then the angel Moroni told him, you didn't, do the, you didn't take them out in the right process, therefore you can't have them again. Okay. When, he, when those golden plates were put back in the box, Joseph reached in and he went to grab them and he was hurled back, quote, uh, was hurled back upon the ground with great force. Again, we have this, this metaphysical thing of this power that's doing it. Whether it was true, I don't know. But this is what it, it said. Okay, so we... You find that Joseph says, and his mother reports, that he goes back home. This is after the third year, and he's very disappointed, and he's crying and weeping, and he's embarrassed to go before his family who are waiting to see the plates. Now, I have a question for you. If you had seen God the Father and Jesus Christ in the first vision, if you have seen an angel of God at least six times whose brightness and glory defy that of the sun, which is how he described it, would you be afraid of what your family thought when you went back and told them that you couldn't get the plates for another year because you had just done it wrong that time. I, I know that that's one of the signs of someone who's come to know the Lord. They're not afraid of man. They're not afraid of anything because they have been changed by God. Would you come back in fear if you've had these real experiences of what your family would say? I don't think so. Again, these are my thoughts. In 1825 and 1826, verses 7 and 8 happened, and uh, I believe that during these four years of waiting to get the plates, Joseph was writing an outline. I believe he was preparing his notes for what the Book of Mormon would be. I believe he was pulling from these sources that I'm going to start getting into next week. He was pulling from uh, republicanism of the time. He was pulling from themes that occurred in 19th century. He was pulling from Solomon Spaulding's book. He was pulling from the, the – uh, 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 
what B.H. Roberts talked about. He pulled from the Bible. He pulled from all kinds of sources. And I believe that during that span where he was saying, I can't get the plates, I can't get the plates, he was working on a rough outline. And I also believe he was working on a set of plates. His dad was a cooper, someone who worked with tin. They did it out in their uh, garage, so to speak. It wasn't a garage, but their farm or whatever. And, they, and I'm, I'm sure they came up with a mock set so that they could heft them around. People could see them or feel them if they were really good friends or touch them. But I don't believe they were golden plates. I think they were a mock, mock set. Here's one of the great things in visits 7 and 8. Joseph had not received the plates yet. Understand this. And Lucy Max Smith, his mother, writes, listen to this. During our evening conversations, Joseph would occasionally give us some of the most amusing recitals that could be imagined. He would describe the ancient inhabitants of this continent, their dress, mode of traveling, and the animals upon which they rode, their cities, their buildings, with every particular, their mode of warfare, and also their religious worship. This he would do with as much ease, seemingly, as if he had spent his whole life with them. This is before he ever received the golden plates. Okay? I know that when I tried for years to write scripts for Hollywood and submitted them to large studios, that as I was going through those, I would tell the stories to people I knew and see what their reactions would be to the scripts. I would tell them things as I was developing it in my mind to see how they would react and if it would be something I should keep. Joseph Smith told his parents and his family, gather around the fire at night and tell them the stories about the ancient Nephites and describe everything about them, and he hadn't even gotten the plates yet. How? History of the church tells us in 4, 537 that Joseph saw other celestial beings while he, between 1823 and 1827. Ivan J. Barrett, a religious professor at BYU, wrote that, Joseph, quote, Joseph was visited by a host of people from the Book of Mormon while translating the plates, including Nephi, Alma, Mormon, and the 12 disciples Jesus chose during his visit to the Americas. Okay, so this is like saying, what would you say, what would you think if I said J.K. Rowling, when she wrote the Harry Potter series, had Harry Potter and all the characters come and visit her as spirits and tell her about what world she was writing of? What would you think of her? First, would you believe the story? You might say, never. Or you might say, possible, but what kind of spirits were these? This is exactly what they're saying here. In 1832, 34, 35, and 38, there seems to be a revision of what Joseph said, and the folklore magic elements of Moroni's visits to him were starting to be taken out, and they were starting to give us a more pure version of what uh, was acceptable to tell. Visit 19, Joseph meets uh, uh, the Moroni on the Hill Cumorah, and the Moroni tells him it's time to get the plates, and then on visit 10, excuse me, visit 9, then a visit 10 on September 22nd, the autumnal equinox again, uh, the angel uh, gives Joseph the plates. It had been four years. Uh, Joseph was now 22 years old. Uh, what was he and his father, who once taught English, what were they doing during that, that four-year period of time? We know that Joseph got married. We know that he lost a brother to an unexpected death during those years. And I propose, that, and I may be wrong, that that was when he was working on the outline, so that when he could uh, put the stone in the hat to translate, he could take that outline, and he knew what the outline was good enough, and he could get and study it, and then he could go and he could just give you, or fill in the blanks of what should happen therein. Additional visitations of Moroni occurred after Joseph said he received the plates. We know that... Uh, 
uh, when he was translating the plates, he lost part of them because Martin Harris, the guy who was helping him translate, gave them to his wife. Moroni took the Urim and Thummim away from Joseph, so he couldn't translate for about a month, gave them back to him, and then he could retranslate again. There's a whole bunch of uh, other um, appearances of the angel Moroni to Joseph uh, for the witnesses, which we're going to talk about after, the, after we talk about the construction of the Book of Mormon. And that ends with Moroni taking the plates back into heaven and disappearing once and for all uh, with the gold plates and with no evidences of um, what the Book of Mormon says uh, around it. That concludes the angel Moroni's supposed uh, contributions to the gold plates. Let's go to the phones at 1-801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. While the operators are getting calls and taking um, messages, I want to report on last week we had uh, several problems come up from what we talked about. And uh, we had them both from the Christian side and we had them from the LDS side. The Christian side were mad at me because I said the Bible does have its problems. And I received several emails saying, what problems? What problems does the Bible have? So let me say this. When you say the Bible is inerrant, you're talking about the original manuscripts that came from the writers of the Bible. That's, what, that's where the word inerrancy applies to. When you say the word Bible today, I have to ask you, well, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the King James Version? Are you talking about the Vulgate? Are you talking about Wycliffe? Are you talking about Tyndale? Are you talking about the New American Standard? Are you talking about the uh, NIV? How about the Paraphrase Bible? So when you say the Bible doesn't have problems, the first question I ask is, what Bible are you speaking of? Okay? And then the second thing you have to ask is, what language are you speaking of? Are we talking about Tagalog? Are we talking about Vietnamese? Are we talking about English? Uh, what are we talking about here in the language? So you would have to be, and it does not help you as a Christian, to say, Every single Bible is inerrant without any type of grammatical problems. That's just not correct. They have problems. The question is, do those problems lead to you not being able to trust your salvation to it? And that, I believe, is not the issue whatsoever. 2 Timothy 3.15 says this, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so it says that the Holy Scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation. All right? So I believe that the Bible, I have a show that's called The Infallible Word. I don't believe the Bible will fail you. I believe the Bible is sufficient to give you everything you need for salvation. I believe every Bible is able to, the Spirit can work through you, and it is your read and search. So, don't get mad when I say there's some problems with it. The problems are very, very small, very small, and they usually don't amount to anything that's significant at all. It's usually like the, a date, possibly, and possibly the name of somebody or the spelling. It doesn't have to do with the essentials of salvation, who Jesus was, grace, none of that. Okay, so don't be offended when I say that. I'm just trying to keep it as honest as I can so we can have dialogue. Uh, I'm going to go to a call. I won't address the LDS complaint unless we have some time. We're going to David from Salt Lake City. David, you're on Heart of the Matter. David? Yeah. Yeah, you have to turn your TV off. Uh, okay, you're on the air. Okay, well, uh, I, first of all, I have to apologize because I haven't watched any of your program tonight, but I just 
TV on, and I chant, and I uh, flipped through a few channels, and I saw you s- sitting there with your uh, <laughs> black clothes, your new your newfound beard, which I haven't noticed until now. It's Are you on. envious? Watch you. So, uh, is this a new thing or what? Uh, I'm I'm wearing the beard. I explained this last week because um, it's we're doing church history. And I'm really excited for the time when we get to Brigham Young where I can shave the mustache off and just have the Brigham Young part. And then I'm going to shave it all off on December 31st of this year. Okay. Well, that's cool. Well, I, you know, I actually have a goatee, but... Uh, Uh-oh. Are you LDS? No, well, just, just define LDS because I, I was LDS ever since the time I was five years old. And, uh, you know, I kind of went... Did, did the whole mission thing like you and temple marriage. Yeah. Unfortunately, my marriage didn't last like yours has. Yeah. No, I, I've changed my ways kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, however, you know, in, in my life, I, I guess I'm not as respectable of a person as you. My, my ex-wife chose not to stay with me. Oh, no, my, 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 my wife is uh, just a saint. I am not more respectable, believe me. Okay. Yeah. Well... Anyway, I have been on your website, and I have noticed that, uh, you know, you seem to have a, real, a really nice family and, and uh, things that seem to be, you've been able to keep things together in that way, and I really admire that. And I was wondering, I don't know if you've ever commented on that in your show or if you would um, would like to comment on that. Yeah. Um, it, it isn't me. Um, my wife, uh, like I said, is a saint. She had to face a lot of garbage with me in our life. I think most wives do. Sorry, guys. But I think, you know, we are pretty rough to start with. And, uh, but she had to ex- face an exorbitant amount. You can imagine just sitting there looking at me, you know, the, the trials with me. But she saw me change as a man, literally. I don't say that, but it's because the Lord changed me, not because of anything I did. He literally changed me so much that she had to say something better, something different. And my kids, my three daughters, the same thing. I just became a better guy because I came to know the Lord and that he saved me. And it just changed me so much that um, it just bettered our life completely. And that's, that's how our family stayed together. My wife had every reason in the world to leave me, my kids to disown me, but they saw the change that the Lord did in my life, and so therefore uh, we've been able to keep it together. What happened in between that time? Oh, it was hell to pay. For, 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 it was difficult, you know. You can't make a transition like that out of one religion and uh, into a relationship without it being difficult, especially when your wife is uncertain that this is going to stick. So you have to, you know, it takes a lot of uh, prayer and a lot of trusting in the Lord, and he's the one who, who, who can make it happen if the participants are willing, you know. Hey, well, there's one other thing I wanted to talk to you about. I, I, I read a little bit of your book, and it, it talked about Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and I started reading that book, and it was very interesting to me, and I wanted you to comment on it. I love Robert Percy's writing. I think Zen, uh, the Phaedrus character, was really interesting, and I, I really um, uh, related well to uh, the whole thing, but Persig is really a dead guy in his heart, man, and when he wrote Dahlia and all the others, I just didn't get it, but anyway, sorry, audience, anyway, long story short, David, I liked him as an author uh, back in the day, and I learned some things from him. Okay. What was your subject tonight? Subject was Moroni. Okay. Well, the only thing I remember about Moroni is 
is like uh, there was a he's up on the temple, of course, on, in Salt Lake Temple is probably the first place, but there was a guy Kimball comes to mind, uh, Jay Golden Kimball, and they yeah. talked about how they asked him, you know, that uh, like in the second coming, Moroni's going to blow his horn, and he said, no, if he does that, then the pigeons will shit all over the east side of the temple, and he didn't think that was going to happen. We have to put the delay back in. David, that was a good. It was a good one. I understand Jay Colton Kimball had had that kind of mouth, but on the air we got to watch it, buddy. Hey, thanks for the call. We're gonna move on. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay. No Jay Golden Kimball quotes. For those of you who don't know, Jay Golden Kimball was LDS who had a foul mouth, and and LDS loved to quote him because it gives them the license to to swear. All right, uh, we're going to Beth, a uh, first time caller from Alpine. Beth, you're on Heart of the Matter. Beth. Hi. Hi, you're on the air. Oh, hi, um, Sean. Hi. I just wanted to comment. I um, used to live near you in Huntington Beach. My family, we weren't members of the church, of the LDS church, and you uh, visited with us several times and, and tried to um, inspire us, and we have since converted to the LDS church, and our family is so happy. Wow. And I just noticed on your show, I saw you on there, and I caught your eye, and I just wanted to tell you that the spirit and the glow has gone from you. Oh, you love this one. You had a spirit about you. You were happy. Your family was happy. Yeah. And I don't see that anymore. It's all I do is see you talking doctrinal, trying to pick apart different Beth, issues that you have. Beth, and, Beth. And I really don't see the spirit that you had then. And Beth, I just wanted to make that comment that can I, I can see that you've lost. This can, I ask your last, can I ask how I knew you, Beth? Before you say all that? Um, yeah, we, we lived um, near you, and we weren't members of the church. When you say near me, give me a street. Pardon me? Give me a street. We lived off of Bouchard and Adams. And, and was your family a part member? No, we weren't. none of us were members. And I came and visited you. Why? I think we were friends. Our kids were friends. Our kids were friends? Yeah, your daughters, Cassidy, and a couple of your daughters. You know my family, then. You could have gotten nothing and, to that. Uh, spirit about you and you said to me once um that dark places the spirit can't dwell in dark places and so that's why bars are always dark and i wondered why do you wear dark clothes every show because uh, oh man i'm getting it tonight aren't i dark clothes are bad i wear black all the time but i just how come you wear black out my mind why do you wear black all the time Cause no because it, it makes you look thinner doesn't it you've lost the spirit you used to have a glow you knew the scripture. Okay, Beth. 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 You gotta let me talk. Beth, can you let me yeah. talk for a second? Because you 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 throw a lot of things out here. I want to say something. Okay. Happiness is circumstantial. Jesus promised that when you follow Him, you are going to have trial and difficulty. Happiness is based on circumstance. Okay. Uh, if I now let me fin- let me let me finish this. Let me finish this. Beth, let me finish this. Beth, 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 let me finish. Okay, I have to, you know, let me finish. You want to hang up. Beth? Yes. Listen, let me say this. I have learned that um, there is a great deal of looking at um, countenance and searching uh, countenance. I don't think there's anything wrong with that unless too much is put on that. Happiness 
there is a reason that part of Utah is called Happy Valley. When you're in a circumstance where everything is going in a certain way and you belong to a certain group, I don't care what it is, you're going to have happiness. But do you have joy? I expect to have great difficulty and sorrows and persecutions as a Christian. I don't expect to have that as a Latter-day Saint. I expect to have uh, a, a camaraderie that will bring a certain amount of happiness. But when you understand these concepts, and if someone wants to write me, I'll explain them to you at length. There is a great difference between the sorrow and difficulty of being a Christian and the happiness that comes with belonging to a church that offers you another gospel. That's the best way I can summarize it. And, uh, but I still think I have a glow, and I still think I'm happy. So don't be so mean. Steph, you've gotten meaner. You need to be nice. I don't even know who you are. Okay, let's go to um, Lou, which is my mom's name, from Provo on the line two. Lou, first time caller. Okay. Hello? Hi, Lou. You have to uh, hang up the phone. I mean, hang up the, the TV. Hello? You have to. Uh, did you turn off the TV? Yes, I have. All right. That flight's gotten to me. All right, go ahead, Lou. Okay, I want to say you still got a glow. <laughs> I think it's a glow. Anyway, you were talking earlier about how Hillcomore got its name. Yeah. It seems like I heard someplace in church history that it was named after a hill in South America. Um, well, who named it was my question. Was it the state of New York or was it the Mormon church and Joseph Smith that got it around to somehow it being called the Hillcomora? Well, I think it was because they were, they, they, the church named it because of a, church, of a hill uh, named that in South America. Yeah, I remember my church teachings. So I wonder what the hill was originally named in Joseph Smith's time. I don't know. You know, because I've read, and when we get into names of the Book of Mormon, it's going to be interesting, because there was a Comoros Island whose capital was Moroni, which is very interesting. That was on a map in Joseph Smith's time. But I want to see, uh, I'm trying to find out what that hill was called before the Mormons took it over and named it uh, Camorra. Oh, I don't know. But I wanted to ask you, too, you were talking about I heard once, too, that Joseph Smith looked in a hat. Oh, he did, yeah. So was it the Urimim Thummim or was it the hat? No, the Urimim, what they call the Urimim Thummim was a stone, and it was put in a hat, and he looked into the hat. So you're right about that. Okay. Yeah. All right, another thing, uh, you were talking about the Bible. Yeah. The Mormons believe that it's it's true as far as it's translated correctly. Well, which parts aren't translated correctly? That's a really good question to ask them. And tell them to take those parts out, and then they'll just talk about the other parts. Well, yes, but I never, I never did know which was true, which wasn't. They, they can't tell you. So it's a really terrible thing to say, you know. Oh, it is. Well, anyway, I just wanted to tell you, you still have a glow about you. Well, I think it's from the sweat on my forehead, but I'll take whatever is working right now. Okay, bye. Thanks, bye-bye. All right, we're going to Tyson, first-time caller from Nampa, Idaho. Tyson, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how you doing? Good, Tyson. How are you? Good, good. Um, I have, uh, you know, I just, um, I was just watching a program uh, about uh, where you are uh, um, asking questions of people that, uh, um, if they know the book is true and and if and uh, or if it's false. You remember that episode, Sean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, all I wanted to do is tell you and the other audience or the other people that are watching um, the show um, is that if you really want to know 
really truly want to know if the Book of Mormon is true, is to pray and ask God. Because he knows all everything. He's the one source of truth. Okay. I know it's true because I prayed and asked God. Okay. And I know the Book of Mormon is true. I know that Joseph Smith is a true prophet. That's and those uh, gold plates, um, ancient writings, are true. Okay. He did translate them. Okay. Okay. I, I hear all your I knows, I knows, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, does God tell other people things are true that are not Mormon? Um, God is the source of all truth. So does he tell Muslims that the Quran is true? Um, no, I don't, I don't really know about that. You know, I know the Quran is, is, you know, writings. Does he tell the Jehovah's Witnesses that the New World Translation is true? Does he tell the, does he tell the, uh, uh, the Baha'i Barith, does he tell the Jews? I mean, tell me, where is truth from God? When, when there's other people of other faiths that say, I know this is true, God tells me. When a woman says, I know I should marry this man, God has told me, and he turns out to be a horrible person. When someone says, God has told me my child's going to live and the child dies. You tell me, what are you talking about when you say you know? What is this knowledge thing you're speaking of? Well, I know through the feelings that I received. The feelings you received? And how do they feel? I feel good about you feel the good. That, I've, that I've learned and studied about okay. and taught. Were you raised in the church? Yeah, I was. Okay. And then... So did you, wait, did you grow up singing songs and, and hearing things from a child and from your parents' mouth and from all your friends that said these things are true? Did you bear testimony? Did you constantly have reaffirming experiences that said they're true, they're true, they're true, and now when you decide they're true, it makes you feel good? Is that possible? Um, because, there was a point but, where but, I had to find out for myself if it was true. It's impossible for you to find out for yourself when you've been indoctrinated to the extent that you have. This is the problem. The problem is the Bible is in conflict with what you say is true. This is the bottom line problem. And it doesn't matter what you say or how it makes you feel or, or glow, you cannot say something is true if it goes against God's word. And here is the problem. So we have a show called Knowing, and you can look it up on the, uh, on the Internet, and you can watch that. And I talk about epistemology and how knowledge works in the Scripture and how it doesn't work. And you're applying it in the very wrong way, my brother. i got to let you go. we got more callers. I, well, I just know it's true. And... And, you, and you feel it, and on we go. All right, man, thanks. We're going to Ron, first-time caller on line two. Ron, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hey, how you doing? Fine. Hey, great show. Look, I'm just uh, curious about what's your Bible, what Bible you use, and what particular uh, company makes yours. I mean, it's just a huge Bible. I'm curious about it, all. You know why? It's so big is it has really wide margins, and when I teach in a normal setting, I write in those margins. I keep it up here in case I need it, but I put my notes on top of it. And it's a King James Version, just like what uh, any LDS. And it's, the, um, it's a really good Bible. I highly recommend it because of its notes. Uh, and it's the uh, Thompson Chain Reference Bible of the, new, of the King James Version. Oh, okay. So if it's the Thompson with wide margins, that explains its size. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I have a Thompson. I went to the uh, Schofield Wide Margin version a while ago, and it's big enough. And 
yours looks so huge. I'm just curious. Yeah. But, hey, Schofield yeah, that, okay, is a good Bible. That's yeah, a good one you have there. Well, I just uh, I was curious. I'll, I'll let you get back to business. Soon. All right, you take care. Thanks for calling. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. We're going to a first-time caller from Arizona, Saban. You're on Heart of the Matter. Saban? Yes. You're on the air. Hello? I scared Saban. All right, we're going to Sandra on line four. Sandra, you're on Heart of the Matter. Okay. You're on the air. Right now? Yep. Okay. Sean? Yes. Um, my question is, I did a study on Joseph's first vision, and there are several things that aren't scriptural, of course, but the but the thing that I wanted to mention since the program tonight was about uh, Moroni. Yes. That is Mor- my question is, is Moroni the angel, the same Moroni that's the son of Mormon? Yeah. It's the same one? Yeah. So, in other words... Um, when you die, you become an angel. Is that is that Mormon doctrine? That's Mormon doctrine, yes. Okay, which is not scriptural. No. Okay, that's that's my that's my point. When I did this whole study, this is just one of the things that's not scriptural. But um, but to me, that would make the whole vision uh, untrue. Right. A false vision. Because yeah. because people when they die do not become angels. Right. Not Just like angels don't become people or men. Men do not become angels. Exactly. And if people take their Bibles out and they just do a simple word search, word study on angels, you'll see that they are. A, we've talked about them before. They're a different category of creation. Just like raccoons are raccoons, fish are fish. Angels are angels. Right. And 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 they are a creation that helped God in the heavens. Exactly. Yeah, and there's many attributes to them and everything else, but this this fairy tale notion that when we die we become these angels that come back is you're right, absolutely not true. That's right. Excellent point. Okay. So so to me the the the, the first vision is a moot point. I mean because you can go into other aspects like for instance seeing God the Father. If you look in the Bible, God is a spirit and no one has seen God at any time. Right. So that alone that also disclaims the vision. But what they say in response to your arguments are that the Bible can't be trusted because corrupt men crept in and changed it. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have the full knowledge of what the Bible could teach you about angels and about seeing God. Okay. So the Bible is not their reference. Well, the Bible is so far as it's translated correctly, but modern-day revelation, in addition to their extra-biblical books of canon, are what they turn to more. Okay. Well, my my conclusion of the whole thing is a false vision produces a false prophet, which produces a false book, which produces a false religion. Yeah, amen. It's a great point. And, you know, if we turn, in fact, I'm uh, going to let you listen to this as I uh, hang up the phone. Thank you so much for your call. You're welcome. Okay. Bye-bye. We can tie in a simple verse from Galatians that helps us understand the context. We have Brennan, a first-time caller. I'm going to get to him in a second. Galatians 1.6. Paul is speaking. He writes to the Galatians, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ and unto another gospel, 
which is not another gospel, except there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. What's the gospel mean? What does that word mean? It means good news of Christ. What's the good news? You're saved by grace. You believe on him. He saves you. And it says in verse 8, Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which has been preached unto you, let him be accursed. And as we said before, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than what you have received, let him be accursed. All right, let's go to Brennan, first-time caller on line two. Brennan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, this is, uh, this is Brennan. How are you doing, Sean? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well. Uh, had breakfast the other day. I don't know if you remember. Oh, yeah. How's it going? I'm well. How's, how's everything going? <laughs> it's going well. Now that we have... <laughs> Good show tonight, brother. Thanks, man. Hey, I just wanted to call in quick and uh, bury in my testimony that evolution is true. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> uh, and I just wanted to leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, my goodness. You are well, okay, my point is this, uh, and I don't know if you want to respond to it or not, but how can you, and I know you've studied the idea of science and evolution, how can you just overlook that? and go back to Christianity, and I'll take your response off the air. All right, man. Thanks for calling. We'll see you in a week or two. All right. That sounds good. Bye-bye. Uh, I think that evolution, I'm sorry, is just a farce. And, and after reading and studying it as best as I could, I'm really not really good in science, so I have to admit that. But after, when I step out onto the seashore at night and I see the stars, and I realized that if uh, this little fact that if you got into a jet plane at one end of the Milky Way and traveled to the other end of the Milky Way, it would take you 100 billion years to get there. And that's just the Milky Way. When I see God's handiwork in nature, it, just like Romans says and like Hebrews 5.3 says and like Psalm says, I am, I am uh, in awe of this creator who manages and puts this thing together. Evolution is a theory. Evolution is, frankly, a lie. I hate to go down this road, but I, I just saw it the other day. Dahmer, they interviewed Dahmer, Stone, uh, whatever that Stone Phillips guy interviewed him, and he said uh, he bought into evolution big time, and he thought, hey, man, if I'm just a product of some circumstantial thing, what do I have to worry about? And he, and then Dahmer came to realize it's just a big lie. And I really, I'll talk to you more depth about evolution. And uh, I think that nature itself will tell you that it's a lie, but we can talk about more of that later. Good question. I like your sense of humor. Although I think you were kind of serious. All right, let's go to Saul. First time caller from Salt Lake city. And he's going to give us some enlightenment on the Urim and Thummim. He's Jewish. Saul. Yeah. You're on the air, brother. Hey, what's going on, brother? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? Nice. Is this Sean? Yeah. Hey, man. All right. Here's the deal. <laughs> you, you were talking about those two seer stones called the Urim and Thummim? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Have you ever done any research and looked at, like, a Hebrew dictionary? Well, I have, but you're kind of mandatory in my – I'm not a linguist, but go ahead. Tell us. Teach us. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I want you to go to a Hebrew dictionary. Okay. And look up the word Yom and Thummim. Okay, what does it say? It says that, well, I can tell you what they are. The two seer stones, and the Jewish people used them to decipher who was going to war against them. Oh, yeah. And they also used them to see if they should hide the sacred object in Jerusalem or fight. Huh. 
He disappeared somewhere around 580 BC, somewhere around that timeline. I'm not sure the actual year. Uh huh. Um, and Jerusalem was destroyed. Well, I stand corrected on them being the stones in the breastplate. What were those? Do you know? Those were those, those are the same stones. Oh, okay. They came out of the breastplate of Aaron. There were yeah. twelve stones. Right. Ten of them uh, represented uh, ten tribes. I'm not sure which ten tribes exactly. Uh huh. And uh, the other two. Uh, see, I haven't been to church for so long. Go back. I just like it, it's but but the deal is is those two seer stones are real. Uh, that's they're, not, they're not stones like you think. Yeah, they're stones. They talk. They actually, they talk about them in the Bible. Yeah, they call them the Urim and Thummim. Yeah, the 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 major difference though is that what Joseph Smith described them being these stones set in bows like glasses. Uh-huh. That they were not the Urim and Thummim of the Bible. They didn't somehow make it from their disappearance into these this gold plate box. And that what really was the called the Urim and Thummim for Joseph Smith was a seer stone placed in a hat. And so, but I didn't know my, uh, my facts as well on the Hebrew, and so I'm really glad you called in and clarified their origins and what they were used for. They came out of the breastplate of King Aaron. Yeah. And actually, I've read the Book of Mormon as well. Yeah? Well, you have to call back and tell us what you think. We're going to move on. Saul, great call. Thank you so much. Yes, brother. Okay, bye-bye. We're going to Jody, first-time caller on line three. Jody, you're in Heart of the Matter. Jody, hi. You're on the air. Oh, hi. I had to get off the TV. You do. I just wanted to say, um, first of all, that I watch all the time. We've talked before. I wanted to thank you for the advice when my sister died and express my sorrow for you with Micah. And um, also let you know that I I was Mormon and now I'm not. And I have heard also, like you have, people say, well, you don't seem happy. You lost the glow, things like that. Yeah. And what I noticed is that uh, happiness isn't really, um, it's like you said, it's its kind of an illusion. I, when I was deluded, I was happier, I guess. But what I have now is confidence in the Lord that he's not a trickster. He's not trying to <laughs> trick us into, you know, like Adam and Eve and the sin. And anyway, yeah. he doesn't try to manipulate us with tricks and I don't. Can you explain what it is? I'm sure you know what it is. I'm trying to say. I do, but it's tough to it's tough to really uh, explain in a short period of time. But I know what you're saying, and I'm glad you called because other people who have found the Lord after having been LDS know the difference between the joy that you have in Him and the difficulty, and the happiness you have from uh, walking around thinking that. Uh, you belong to a special group where you call yourselves brothers and sisters, all your needs are cared for, all your answers are provided for you, and you don't have to think anymore. I guess that could be called a state of happiness. enough. Yeah. You know. Great call. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, thank you. We'll talk to you later. All righty. Bye-bye. You know what, Ray? Live from the Mexican hate God, show up and be our brother or sister if you're addicted to porn, uh, if you're uh, a liar, uh, a failure, a homosexual, a sinner, uh, show up smelling drunk, reeking of weed, uh, high on intoxicants, whatever, show the heck up and we will feed you uh, both bagels 
and the Word of God. And uh, in time, hopefully, you will become full of comfort and ease. So go to www.campus with hyphens there. I think we have a graphic for you if you want to know about location and time. Also on Sundays, AM 820 replays, Heart of the Matter here in the Salt Lake Valley. Uh, actually, all through the Wasatch Front from 1 to 2. Uh, AMA 20 is a great source of Christian information, so check them out. Then every Monday night at the downtown Salt Lake City Denny's, we hold a women's Bible study. starts at 7 p.m. last night. They had their first one. 22 women showed up in the Denny's. They took over the whole room, and they had a great time. They stayed. Uh, there was uh, Christian male security there to ensure safe departure and arrival. And uh, we just invite you, ladies, if you want uh, – sistership and you want to hear the word of God and learn about the Bible, join us at Denny's Downtown Monday night from 7 to 9. We have a brand new book that is doing really well, uh, even nationally. Thank the Lord, the name where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face, an A-to-Z doctrinal comparative. Uh, I personally believe it's one of the best tools out there for those interested in the Mormon-Christian debate. Unsolicited comments posted on Amazon about A to Z include this one from Andrew, which says, this is the most comprehensive, exhaustive, every if you can think of book on the Mormon Christian debate that's available. No stone is left unturned or looked at in the hat. If you ever wondered about Mormon, what Mormonism teaches compared to biblical Christianity, this is the resource to get. A woman named Stephanie wrote in that the book needed to be written. Lamour gave it a top rating and said well done and Kevin at mightybuying.com wrote quote the reality is in an age where more and more people are blending the Mormon religion with Christianity this book starts to look at the Grand Canyon a theological difference between the two while it doesn't cover every topic it provides hundreds upon hundreds of pages of the differences and is a great primer uh, to anyone interested in looking at the gulf between the religions end quote where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face, it can be purchased at any family Christian bookstore in the nation. Uh, of course, on Amazon, at utlm.org, Oasis Books and Logan, Lifeway Books on State Street here in Murray. However, uh, for a summer promotion, Alathia Ministries is offering what we think is a great package deal. What is it? Five tremendous products that separately uh, would retail out at about 100 uh, bucks, only for... That's our uh, high-end uh, promotion stuff. Only for 50 musty clams. 50 musty clams, and you can get I Was a Born-Again Mormon, uh, the book. Uh, if my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would fight. Uh, a 17-verse CD of God's Word put, put to music. We call it In His Words. We use that CD at campus to worship the Lord. And um, a copy of an excellent docudrama called A Mormon President. It's excellent. So a video, a CD, uh, uh, I Was a Born Again Mormon, if then, and then also to top it all off, a copy of the latest Where Mormonism Meets Biblical Christianity, face-to-face, 600-plus uh, pages, all for 50 musty clams. It helps us move product into the hands of people and helps uh, you pay a lot less for them. So go to www.hotm.tv uh, to take advantage of this sales uh, extravaganza. 
Speaking of uh, HOTM.TV, the website, you've got to go check it out and see what our uh, webmaster has done with the content. Every show comes with the notes for the show. It comes from uh, the, the teaching uh, from the Word. And then there's also he's, he's attached a uh, forum where people dialogue back and forth with uh, Mormons and Christians about the content. So we hope that you'll check out www.HOTM.TV. In terms of other websites that Aletheia Ministries is behind, we're going to show you a graphic now, and it's uh, bornagainmormon.com, campus with hyphens between, hotm.tv, and X-File, X-Mormon Files, xmormonfiles.tv. Uh, on Bishop Earl Erskine on Friday night interviews people on the uh, X-Files uh, here on TV20, from 8 to 8.30, and you can go to that website uh, and you can uh, watch those. But tune in here at KTMW TV 20 on Friday nights and take a look at these interviews. They're really good. Since uh, moving to Utah, we are often asked, well, how do you like it? How do you like it? I want you to know that uh, I love, we love Utah. Love it. I prefer it, honestly, to uh, Huntington Beach, California. For a number of reasons. I love the grandeur and beauty of the state. I love the seasons. I love the Christians who are in the state who love the Lord. And we even love our LDS neighbors on each side, Jen and her family on one side and Kim the bachelor on the other. But what is extremely difficult getting used to is the religious piety all around. It's almost like there are living parables being played out anywhere you turn. And, and you bump into them, and you watch them played out, and it's just amazing. I mean, look around, and you'll see uh, the parable of the sower. You'll see the prodigal son. You'll see the wheat and the tares. You'll see the Pharisee and the publican almost in every place you go. Uh, a number of weeks ago, my wife uh, and daughter, Cassidy, were uh, pulling a trailer up to the U of U on a Sunday morning uh, to get it there for our service up there. And... Um, while they were in the neighborhood, a bunch of LDS people were walking to their ward house, all dressed up in their suit and, and stuff. And uh, while they were driving, the trailer came off the hitch. And they're out in the middle of the street, and this heavy trailer is down in the street, and the chains are holding it, but it's off the hitch. And there stands two women, uh, also dressed up for church, and they don't know what to do. And as they're out there, these LDS guys, they walk by. They don't even stop and help. No one offers to stop and help lift that trailer up on the hitch as they're walking on their way to church. I mean, it was just like the Good Samaritan, the Levite and the priest passing on the other side along the way. And then all of a sudden, seemingly out of the blue, several men who were running uh, to go play soccer at a nearby school uh, field came running up, grabbed it, put it on there, fixed it, and off they went. Uh, I think we'll call this the parable of the walking saints. As they continue to unfold, we're going to teach you new parables as we see them. News alert, news alert. Mormonism is backing off on some of their brainwashing techniques. Corey, a faithful viewer, writes, quote, I'm technically LDS, and I do attend sacrament meeting regularly for family reasons. Anyway, the first presidency of the LDS church had bishops read a letter during sacrament meetings, and I assume it was across the whole church. To keep it short, Members were asked to not take their young children to the pulpit and whisper words they should repeat. The letter requested that only those who could, quote, speak for themselves bear their testimonies, end quote. There's a cynical side to me, you know, that um, 
to criticize this and saying the LDS are bucking depression or trying to appear more mainstream, et cetera. But I thank God when any inroad uh, is made that gives people, especially children, uh, the chance to break through the, the, the mind, the brainwashing that uh, religion can do to them so that they can hear the truth more readily as they grow up. Uh, may this type of thing continue to snowball. I, I look forward to the day when the LDS First Presidency has them say, uh, we just want to let everybody know here that we are renouncing the Pearl of Great Price and the Doctrine and Covenants and uh, the, the Book of Mormon. And we are turning to the Bible only, and we're, shutting, we're turning our temples over to uh, the homeless, and we're, whatever it is, you know. We look forward to that day as well. How about a moment from the Word? Text for today, John chapter 8. Verse 23, Jesus is being confronted by the Jewish leaders who seek to catch and accuse him, as they often try to do. And in the setting, the Lord says something significant relative to the Mormon Christian debate. He says, you are from beneath, speaking to the Jewish guys. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Mormonism teaches, and it's frankly a Hellenistic thought, that all human beings existed prior to coming to this earth in what they have labeled a pre-mortal existence. Uh, this belief places all human beings, in the, anybody who's been a human being, in the same place before this world was formed, Jesus included, and, um, and all of us came from above, according to the LDS. If this is so, why does Jesus differentiate between the origins of the men in front of him, saying, you are from beneath, and, but with regard to himself, he says, I, himself, I am from above. And why does he add, you are of this world, I am not of this world. In John 3.31, the Lord says, he that cometh from above, is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. You know, if you take the LDS view, we all came from heaven, so therefore we're all above all. That wouldn't make any sense, would it? Jesus clearly teaches he came from above, and anyone who comes from above is above all that there was no pre-existent state, that this is one of the major lies of Mormonism, and the Lord essentially cinches the deal right there with the words he says. If all of us came from above, Jesus wouldn't have said this, but he did in fact say it. The only human being to ever walk this earth who existed pre-mortally was Jesus Christ. And references in Scripture to him existing before the foundations of the world, talk of him and him alone. Man was created from the dust, and he became a living soul when God breathed the pneuma into him, and that dust, that clay, became a living soul. That was the origin of humanity, from the dust, the breath of God animating all of mankind. As a result, man is earthly from below, Jesus from above. Shamefully, this vital message is about our king 
and us in our relationship to him is completely lost upon the LDS, and he becomes marginalized as a result. Let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we seek you and need you, and we pray your spirit will be with us wherever we are. Those seeking truth, Lord, we pray you'll be with them. Our audience here out in TV land who watch on the archives, we pray you'll be with our volunteers and those who give so much time, those who pray for the ministry, who support any way, Lord. We thank you for them, and we pray you will open eyes and ears in these unique, precarious times dealing with Mormonism and your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week we stepped into the narrative of the Book of Mormon, and right off the bat we encountered some potential autobiographical elements that may have been included in the Book of Mormon. Uh, I have been faced with a decision whether to go each chapter and just kind of pull out all the things that Joseph could have composed that chapter from, autobiographical, other books, view of the Hebrews, all that stuff, or to remain focused on the theme at hand, which in this case are the autobiographical influences that could have made their way into the text, and then go back and review another theme once we finish that out. And this is what I've decided to do. So, recall that both Joseph Smith Jr. and his father, Joseph Smith Sr., were the biggest participants in folk magic practices in the Smith home. Joseph Jr. and his father often went out together to do their magic practices prior to the Book of Mormon coming forth and even after. Joseph Jr., of course, used a stone and a hat to pretend that he could see buried treasure, and then he would have other guys go and dig where he said, ah, there's some treasure right there. And then, of course, Joseph Sr. used a divining rod that gave direction as to where these hidden treasures would be. Well, in the Book of Mormon, as Lehi's family, where we left them off, is out in the wilderness, they have the brass plates, they are getting ready to go out into the wilderness, headed for America by boat. Before they traveled, one morning, Lehi comes out, and he finds a curious ball outside of his tent. First Nephi 16.10 describes it as a round ball of curious workmanship, and it was a fine brass, and within the ball were two spindles, and the one pointed the way whether we should go in the wilderness. In the Book of Mormon, this ball is called a campus, uh, excuse me, a compass in First Nephi 18:12, and the Liahona in Alma 37:38. It's interesting because the ball worked both like the hat that Joseph Smith claimed to be able to see words in, and the divining rod that his father used. Because the Liahona or the compass, this ball had words appear because of it, and so Joseph, he said words would appear, and it also pointed the direction whether they should go. So combined, we have both things that Joseph and his father were involved in in their magic practice included in the Book of Mormon description of this Liahona. This Liahona in the Book of Mormon, it says, took the Lehi and his family to more fertile parts of the wilderness, just like following directions on the magic, uh, with the magic things would take the Smiths to more fertile parts of a piece of land. At one point in the narrative, when Lehi's family was hungry for food, it was the magnificent character Nephi, a type for Joseph Smith himself, who took this ball and through his righteousness was led to a place where he found game that they could kill and eat. Is 
this similar to Joseph Smith seeing himself as the heroic member of the Smith family who was led to a hill full of golden plates when the rest of the males in the Smith family failed to save them when they were spiritually and materially destitute? Listen to the arrogant statement taken directly from the history of the church that Joseph Smith made to his own brother William in 1835. Quote, I brought salvation to my father's house as an instrument in the hands of God when they were in a miserable situation, end quote. I was always in the impression Jesus brought salvation to people's houses. I don't know. Anyway, uh, and so we have this arrogance that Joseph believed he brought to his own family, and we have Nephi in the Book of Mormon doing the same thing through the narrative. Uh, anyway, back in the wilderness, and when Nephi and Lehi and their family were all in a state of mourning, and murmuring, Nephi's brothers and their wives started to say in the story, we want to kill Nephi. We don't like the type of person that he is. Big, strong, perfect spiritual leader Nephi needs to die. That's not in there, but that's how they thought. And their complaints are really interesting when you consider how Joseph Smith's brothers probably thought about him and his relationship with his dad and his claims of being able to save the family. Listen to what Joseph Smith has the wicked brothers of Nephi say about him in the Book of Mormon. Ready? The wicked brothers say, Nephi says the Lord has talked with him, and also that angels have ministered unto him. But behold, we know that he lied unto us. And he tells us these things, and he works many things by his cunning arts, that he may deceive our eyes thinking perhaps that he may lead us into some strange wilderness. Taking direct quotes from the Book of Mormon that I just read to you, we know that Joseph Smith also claimed before his brothers that the Lord talked with him, just like Nephi, and that angels had administered to him, just like Nephi. And it's not very hard to hear Joseph Smith's brothers saying about him that he had been lying to them, like Nephi's brothers do, that he had been working many things by his cunning art, and that he had been deceiving their eyes. I mean, why would Nephi's brother, 600 years before Christ, accuse him of working many things by cunning art? Why that phrase? It's really interesting because one of the charges laid against Joseph Smith in 1826 was uh, being a disruptive or dis- disorderly person, and written in that charge was that Joseph was uh, a practitioner of crafty science. That was in the actual charge found against him where he was charged and convicted for being a glasslicker. And it said he was practicing crafty science. Okay? Take that. And now Nephi here in the Book of Mormon's brothers are accusing him of practicing cunning arts. It's just, it's biographical. I'm not saying it was even intentional, but it comes from the mind of somebody who can think this way and pull from all sources. A book of ancient origin, I don't think so as these things continue to uh, unfold. How many years did Lehi and his family sojourn in the wilderness? Eight. How many years did uh, Joseph Smith's uh, senior family sojourn once they left Sharon, Vermont, where Joseph was born, until they got all the way out into uh, western New York? Eight. Uh, coincidence? Maybe. In chapter 17 of the Book of Mormon, Nephi is commanded to build a ship. 
that come to the water, and Nephi is told by the Lord, build a ship. And he starts to make tools because he found some ore with which he could do that. And he began running into trouble building his ship. And the brothers once again begin to criticize him. And they say things about Nephi and his person that Joseph's brothers could have easily said about him as well when it came time for him to produce the plate, the Book of Mormon, and the grand vision he had. Listen to what Nephi's brothers say in the face of his shipbuilding uh, attempt. We knew that you could not construct a ship, for we knew that you were lacking in judgment, wherefore thou canst accomplish a great work, and thou art like unto our father, led away by the foolish imaginations of his heart. End quote. Joseph Smith's father during this time was a drinker. He was a money seeker with his divining rod. He didn't do much else. And so the, the family did not look with high esteem upon him at that time. Joseph was his only partner. So we have the similar thing coming through the narrative of the Book of Mormon. Last week I mentioned Joseph Smith was potentially one of the greatest religious synthesizers of all time. We are also well aware of the arrogance he possessed, saying he can boast more, having done more, even Jesus Christ, with uh, establishing the church and being the one to bring salvation to his father's house, taking all this into consideration. Don't be too quick to dismiss the multifaceted, the multifarious ability of Joseph Smith to pull from everything around him and incorporate it as he creates this myth called the Book of Mormon. In a simply fascinating book called The Sword of Laban, Joseph Smith and the Dissociative Mind, a medical doctor by the name of W.D. Moraine, examines a number of traumatic experiences Joseph Smith endured as a child, and he ties them in to the narrative of the Book of Mormon. We're going to get to that next week as we continue to search and examine the Book of Mormon for uh, autobiographical or potential autobiographical themes that found their way in. Uh, we're going to open up the phone lines now, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. First-time callers, please. LDS callers preferred, and turn off your television sets while you wait. Our ability to remain on the air and doing what we do is directly related to your support. Your support being uh, prayer, uh, telling people about the program, and if in the place and if led of the Lord, uh, financial. Please prayerfully consider the following. We're back, and we thank you. Listen, Bill F. writes in and asks, did you know that in the Salt Lake City Museum, they have no Book of Mormon artifacts? Can you believe it? In the Salt Lake City Museum, there's no Book of Mormon artifacts. Of course, they've got farms down there at BYU, and they've got all these archaeologists, and they've got all this stuff, and they're doing all these research, and they've got everything going. Not a single coin, not a single arrowhead, not a sword, not a scimitar, nothing, nothing, no plate, nothing from the Book of Mormon to prove, prove its archaeological existence. And here's the thing. Joseph Smith went to the Hill Cumorah right behind his house, near his house, dug up the plates. That's where they were buried during an immense battle. Who owns the hill? The LDS Church. They can excavate it and fill that Salt Lake Museum with Book of Mormon artifacts. Why don't they? Uh-huh. Okay. 
Listen, uh, let me tell you something about epistemology, and that means how we know something. Okay, this is really important, and it's fascinating, all right? Mormons and others attack Christianity primarily on three points. They attack us for uh, the Word of God, the Bible. They attack us for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and what we think of him. And they attack us for the church that uh, we are, meaning there's so many denominations and there's so many different vari- variable things, okay? Just remember that. Those three things, the Word of God, the Son of God, and his body, body of Christ, okay? Think about this for a second. God established his Word not by just sending a book down through one man and having it written and there be there for all ages, giving it to Adam and having Adam pass it down. He sent his word through men, okay? Men, all right? Inspired by God. Men inspired by God. Those two parts. Why men? Because God establishes his truth in real things when dealing with humans. And men are real in real places with real histories in real towns. And so he works through men and who are moved upon by the Holy Spirit. Those men leave behind evidence. Okay? Second one, they attack Christ, his divinity, who he is. Who was Christ? He was 100% man. He didn't have him up in the heavens and some spirit being sacrificed and do everything. He came down, was born. He was 100% man and 100% God. And so God worked through, again, man leaving in evidence. Josephus saying Jesus was an actual person, died on a literal cross by the Romans during the Pax Romana, evidence of his existence, 100% God, just like the Bible, through men, Holy Spirit. You see how God works? He works through men to bring forth heavenly things. Finally, we have his church. Who's it filled with? Men, people, women, human beings and the Holy Spirit that rests upon the church, giving evidence of him and his fruit throughout the world today. God sets forth his epistemology, how we know things, by coming through real people inspired by God, you see, because real people leave evidences. If there is a group who only focuses on the real, then what you have are called humanists. They don't believe in the heavenly side. And they say, we're humanists. Look, at this is man. This is real. I can only believe in what is real. If you have people that disbelieve in the spiritual side and not the man's side, they are called a mysticism, a mystic. And mystics only believe, they believe in some guy saying, God told me that you should wear a pink wig. And the mystics believe in this personal revelation that transcends all material. That doesn't, God has never said, I want you to do that. He works with men filled with the Holy Spirit, and those combined provide evidence of him. You get how that works. Mormonism has said, sure, mystic, sure. Joseph Smith provided most of the canon. He said, I received it. This is the truth. This is the truth. This is the truth. And it's passed all the way down today. And that is why there is no evidence in the Salt Lake City uh, Museum of what Joseph Smith said, because he didn't act and provide the way God does, physical material, and spiritual, all right? Hope you get all that. Uh, is there anything in the Book of Mormon that predicts Joseph Smith's coming? No. Uh, Joseph Smith's name is alluded to in the Book of Mormon, and it does talk in the Book of Mormon about 
a prophet that will bring it forth, but it doesn't say Joseph Smith himself. We're going to Jeff in Washington, D.C. on line one. Jeff, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. Uh, glad to get through to you. I, I figured out where everything has gone, where the uh, Book of Mormon lands actually are. Where? Pretty simple. Atlantis. Yes. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. I had two Mormon missionaries come by, and I, I told them I was listening to a song by Donovan about Atlantis. And it talks about 12 apostles and ships sailing out, and it's clear that the Book of Mormon lands are somewhere at the bottom of the ocean. Well, you know, I would not, uh, I would bet that that theory is going to pop up sometime and become popularized because it makes as much sense as everything else. You know, Jeff, when I was a kid, I mean, literally, the, the books, books of Mormon, they contained pictures of, uh, of, and it would say under the pictures, the American Indians in Book of Mormon times. I mean, it was all centered here. But since they haven't been able to prove it through archaeology and DNA, suddenly it's moved on. And I guess from your opinion, it's in the lost city of Atlantis. Well, let's work together and start a rumor. I, I, I think they'll really go for it. That sounds like a good idea. It starts here on Heart of the Matter. <laughs> All right. Good job, Jeff. Thanks for watching. Sure. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. Uh, I got my nephew to make up a word when he was in high school, and they tried, and they popularized it in the high school, and uh, uh, it, it, it was barleyed. Oh, they were just totally barleyed, man. And... Uh, and, and pretty soon there were kids in the neighborhood who were getting that rumor going, hey, is he barley today? So uh, maybe they can start a little rumor there. Book of Mormon Atlantis, when you see it on blogs, laugh to yourself. It started here. Uh, question, when were you married in the temple? When you were married in the temple, did you have to reach your hand through a curtain? Yes. What happens when you go to the temple is you enter in, you get uh, washed and anointed, and you then put on garments, you get a new name, you go in and you sit and you watch a film for about an hour and 45 minutes, and during that film presentation, you're given a bunch of different keywords and handshakes, okay? And once you learn all of those, and what those represent is when you die, you will go and you will present those keywords and handshakes to God or to angels so that you could be allowed into heaven. And so what happens is you sit through that film for an hour and 45 minutes, you get all the keywords, you get all the handshakes, and then they say, go to the veil. And they open up this thing, and there's a whole bunch of curtains standing there with holes in them, and there's a person on the other side of the veil representing God, and you come up and you put your hand through this hole in the, in the, in the screen, and he puts his hand through, and you do all the handshakes, and you say all the key secret phrases, and then when God is satisfied on the other side, he says, come on in, buddy. And you walk on through, and you go into this room called the Celestial Room, and inside that, everybody's sitting, your mom, your dad, some are crying, and, and it's this experience like you just walk into heaven. And uh, so you have to go back to the temple as a member of the church, and you have to pay tithing, and you have to do everything they say in order to get in that temple in order to learn what those handshakes and key phrases are. One of them is very long, and they only tell it to you when you are at that curtain. Uh, and so they tell it to you, and you have to repeat it, and you can't. So you have to keep going back in order to learn it. And in order to keep going back to learn it so you can have it when you die to get to God, so you can get into heaven, you've got to pay your tithing to be able to be worthy to go in. You see how it works? And so that is how the system works. It is wholly founded on masonry, completely founded. In fact, the Leah Hona we were just talking about, 
my good friend Reed, he points out, founded on masonry. The, the orbs and the balls that are in Masonic temples today, Joseph took from that and created, uh, in all probability, the Liahona as his father and, and brother Hiram were masons before the book was written. So the ties are all there. He was a great religious synthesizer. He went, became a 33 degree, uh, the master mason in three days, and then about three weeks later, he produced the Mormon temple ceremony. This is true stuff. I'm not making it up. Check my facts. If you sit there and say Joseph Smith was a true prophet, and I spend my time going into these temples that he says are like the temple of ancient Israel, and, and it's a complete lie, and you've been deluded, and you're wasting your time in there, and instead you should be having your relationship with the Lord. Ted in Wyoming was, Ted in Wyoming weighs, it says, Ted in Wyoming weighs his grandmother, says his grandmother was LDS and bedridden, now born again two months, and she took two steps today. Well, praise God, Ted in Wyoming. May God continue to bless her. Listen, our good friend Michael, the ex-pagan, now son of the living God, uh, wrote with an interesting point about marriage in the LDS church. He says, Mormons, and, and having studied it and understanding it, and I would agree with him, don't believe that other marriages are of any value. In the Mormon mind, the only marriage that has merit are those that are performed in the temple and where people are sealed for time and all eternity, a man and a woman, and they, then they are, have a celestial marriage, you see. But if you're married outside of the temple, Mormons consider that not even really a marriage. It doesn't even matter because it's not going to go on beyond the grave. So Michael's point was what's the big fear about uh, and their criticism of homosexual marriage uh, because they criticize regular How come they're not petitioning against other marriages too? because they firmly believe that other marriages really have no value, because they don't carry on beyond this grave. Mormon missionaries promise people when they knock on the door, hey, would you like to be sealed to your husband for time and all eternity? If they asked my wife that, she would say no at this point. But uh, they asked some people that, oh, yes, I would. Have you lost a child? Yes, I did. Would you like to be sealed to them forever and ever so when you die you know they will be with you in heaven? Yes, I would. Well, we have the answer on how that can happen. And I literally met a woman the other day who joined the church because she had a daughter who died when she was a Christian, and she couldn't get an answer as to where the daughter was, but the Mormons promised her that that daughter would be sealed to her if she went to the temple and did everything right, and hence she became a Latter-day Saint. What a, what a lie. I mean, the Lord Jesus said, we're not married nor given in marriage in heaven. It's going to be a much better deal. So, you know, it's just... This is why we do this, my friends, to release you from the bondage that people are in. Joanne and Vernal, first-time caller. Joanne, you're on heart of the matter. Hey, um, my question, well, it's more of a comment, but, um, you know, I'm thinking that if Joseph Smith was such an important part of the restoration of the gospel, wouldn't it have been prophesied in the Bible? I mean, all these great things have been prophesied in the Bible, but yet, there, is there anything in the Bible that prophesies about, um, a, you know, a prophet coming, um, a, a church being reorganized? or You know, is there anything in the Bible that talks about that? Well, it's a great question, Joanne, and this is why. In, in our Bible, the Christian Bible, whatever version it is, no. However, in the Joseph Smith translation in Genesis chapter 33, I believe, he wrote his own name in the Bible as someone who's coming forth 
to bring everything forward. I'm not kidding. <laughs> so he was inspired, not by any language, not looking at ancient texts, but as he read through the Bible to say, hey, this is where my name needs to be, to talk about me coming forth and starting the true church, add it in. And the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible includes his name in that chapter. But not in the real no, Bible. <laughs> no, no. Except where it talks about false prophets. That's where it talks about Joseph Smith in our Bible. But, you know, can you see the con? Can, can, I mean, I'm, I'm asking this kind of to the audience and to you. Uh, can you see the con that he's done? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We are, our eyes have been opened, and we're actually in the process of leading the church. And so, um, yeah, we're just, I just, you know, I just thought something so significant to actually bring, you know, the Mormons think something so significant that they're actually bringing, restoring Jesus, you know, God's gospel on the earth, that would somewhere, you would think, be in the Bible, you know, and it's not. There's nothing. So. Well, hey, i got to ask you something. What are you going to do now that you're leaving? Um, <laughs> well, we are definitely found a really good Bible-based church in our area. Awesome. Um, we're just gonna we're gonna go with it, and we're gonna we're gonna hold on to the Word of God and the Bible, and that's what we're doing. So so proud of you, Joe, and way to go! You have a family? Yes, I do. Uh huh. I have um, a husband and two little children at home. Pray for Joanne, her husband, and two little children out in Vernal, everybody. And uh, you are making the greatest decision of your life. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. I love those success stories. Isn't that wonderful? Our audience here tends to agree. Hey, a faithful viewer wrote in and said, tonight on Mythbusters, which is a very reliable show, by the way, they had a show where they were able to, they, they tested how to fool people into believing something that was a lie. And in the testing, they found that to really fool people, it required a group of at least four that are in on the scam, and before a person could be lied and tricked into believing it, the show was titled Head Games. Great title, because in the end, it really all is, and that goes back to those little kids with their parents whispering, I, am, I know the church is true. I know the church is true. I believe in Joseph. I believe in Joseph. I mean, and, and these four kids are just like four. What else, Mom? You know? And, and they're just brainwashed. And so we have people call into the show, and they're like, Sean, didn't you go on a mission and teach people? Yes, I was raised like that. My mom whispered into my ear, too, and I was fooled. I was tricked, okay? Not that smart. I didn't start thinking until I got older. But when I did, and I said, I want to know God above everything else. I don't care what the cost is. I want to know truth. And, you know, you have that responsibility, too. You have that responsibility, too. Don't think that you can just lollygag your way through the Mormon church and think God's going to be happy with you when you show up. He's going to be like, dude, I was calling to you your entire life with my Holy Spirit, and what did you do? You just kept accepting Mormonism because it was convenient to you, you loser. And so you have the responsibility to decide, am I going to listen to and am I going to seek after truth, or am I just going to throw my hands up and say it must be true? I'm too lazy I'm too afraid of losing my job. I'm too afraid of my children who won't be able to go to Mutual anymore. I'm so afraid that they won't be invited to the school parties if, I, if they find Jesus. 
I mean, come on. It's Jesus. You have him on your side, your kids will kick rear end as they go through life. I can promise you that. Okay. Why would the God of the universe need special handshakes and words to let you into heaven? It's a great question. Ask your LDS friends that because it's literally what they believe. And you know what they will say? The God of heaven wants everybody to uh, be worthy to go to heaven. And in order to be worthy, you have to prove it. In order to prove it, you go to the temple and you show that you're honest and you pay your tithes and you keep the Sabbath day and you obey your callings and you're faithful to your spouse and all that stuff. And then you go to the temple and you're given all those secret things and it shows that you were worthy enough to receive them in this life. And that proves to God that you were holy. And uh, what a lie. That's counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says, look it, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I, Jesus alone, will give you rest. And it's always interesting to me, you know, the LDS church, they, they put you through two screening processes to get into the temple. You have to meet the bishop or the bishopric member, and you have to ask all these questions. And then you have to go to a stake presidency member or the stake president, and they ask you the same questions again. And then after you get the two signatures, you get your recommend, and you're allowed to go into the temple. And you go into the temple, and you know everybody's been screened, and all the lockers have locks on them. I don't get it. Okay, uh, let's move forward. Uh, This is from Francie, uh, who has some insights on being involved in churches at one time in her life. It says, Sean, love your program and stream it on iPod. No longer a believer in any religion. You do not make me want, uh, you do make me want to search out what being saved means. As I was particularly offended as a young black Jewish girl by all the rude Christians who want to know how I was saved, if I was saved, why I killed Christ. Uh, Anyway, my mother was devastated by the cruelty racism of the worldwide church of god so this is another experience she had my sister says they've broken into many branches i told her that you say kakot she's the leader of the worldwide church of god that helped them leave behind some of their cultic practices and become more mainstream christian and that she uh, and i told my sister you say kakot has turned it around she studies and we both find that laughable the interracial marriages they've destroyed the hearts they've broken the monies they've wasted on politics, their far-right-wing people punishing policies have not been replaced with any love that we have heard of in the email. Now listen, uh, you know, uh, religions make a lot of mistakes. Pastors are just men, and Christians are just people. And sometimes they get it in their head that they can apply things to the religious life of their congregation that are not true. And so it does a lot of damage. And that is why the, the foremost important part of every individual's life on this earth is to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by virtue of him sending his Holy Spirit, giving you a new heart, which gives you new eyes and a new perspective and a direct communication with the Father where you can now call him Papa, where before he was a God of fiery wrath, he now becomes your Papa in this relationship. After that, it does not matter if you go to a church that commands you eat toast. You can go to any church that can get all mixed up and get real, and you can just walk away because you have the thing that matters in you. 
Now, church is important. Find a good one, like the, one, the woman in Vernal. She's going to find one that teaches the Bible. Really good, really important. Because uh, associating with like-minded believers and studying the Word and, and worshiping and all those things is very important to our Christian walk. However, what's important to the individual in terms of living with God after this life is the relationship. And that does not come by and through any, any, any church. No pastor, no bishop, no pope or priest, no prophet. It comes directly through your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so hang in there. Uh, those of you who are suffering, um, have this email. Excuse me one second. Uh, this person wonders if Joseph and Hiram killed Alvin, that was their older brother, because he didn't want to go along with the plate idea. Uh, Alvin having died at the age of 25 from mercury poison. Uh, I want you to know that all history that I've ever read about Joseph Smith and his life and any of the scholars who are pretty smart scholars who research it would never conclude that they had anything to do with his death. Uh, uh, Supposedly, from everything I've read, the older brother Alvin was the father figure in the Smith home as Joseph, Joseph Sr., the father, was out of the way with wine most of the time in their young lives and out searching for treasure with his divining rod. And so Alvin was like the father figure. And he died unexpectedly and from a common uh, treatment that they gave him, drinking some, this mercury-based compound, and it stuck in his stomach, and it killed him in three days. And Joseph and Hiram and the rest of the family were brokenhearted when Alvin died. So I think that, that was, that's probably a bad rumor or a bad thought that people are pushing around. However, one interesting thought to that is, when a Methodist, I think it was a Methodist preacher, came to the Smith home a few days after Alvin died, and he found out that Alvin had not been baptized, it drove Joseph's mother just absolutely into the pits of sorrow because the, the preacher said he's in hell. He wasn't baptized. Another evidence of people making mistakes in what they say. That's not biblical. And, and he said, your, your, your son Alvin is in hell because you didn't baptize him. So immediately Lucy took all the kids that would go, and Joseph was not one of them, and went and got them and, jo- and had them join a church and get baptized. Joseph stayed with his father by his side. He refused to join any religion and continued on that road with him going out and doing the magic stuff, uh, etc. So it's an interesting parallel. It is from this event in Joseph's life they believe baptism for the dead came about that Joseph said those people who have died without baptism can have an opportunity to have it, and it's thought that he probably brought this all forward by reading 1 Corinthians 15:29 and thinking of his brother Alvin, giving his mother and father hope of this thing, and boom, we have a doctor. Okay? All right, let's go to Robbie in Cash Valley. He's LDS. Robbie, you're on the air. Okay. I'm calling because I'm a little concerned about the style of your program. Style? Style. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, I'm concerned about the style of your talk. Why would you be concerned about the style of my talk? Why are you concerned about the style of my program? Well, okay. Yeah, it's a fair question, huh? Because when you start going down to opinions about how things are done, you get into a real sticky oh. wicket, don't you? This is something that happens in your show. I want a chance to say something. I'm letting you. I'm LBS. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. What are they saying? No, you're a Mormon. I believe. Jesus Christ Church. I'm a Christian. No, you're not. 
I am. Well, I don't know about you. You might be. I, I, Mormonism does not produce Christians. Mormonism produces Mormons. And your show presents us as very an ugly religion. I don't care what the show produces. I'm here for a purpose. I, when you... You, Are you going to tell me how I do it so that you can not be offended, Robbie? I know you. You've called here before, and this is why I'm being so tough with you right now. Why are you so trapped? Robbie, because you've called here before. We say first-time callers. You've called here before. I know who you are, and I'm getting you right to the point. Let me tell you something, my friend. You call here and say you're Christian. Hey, I called before. Do you know what that means, Robbie? I don't understand. Say that one more time. Do you know what it means to be a Christian, Robbie? I know what it means. What does it mean? Explain it to us. It means to love Christ, to follow him, to rely on his grace that we may be saved and brought back to our Heavenly Father. Atonement means at one. It's a process whereby Christ brings us back to our Heavenly Father. A process? Who isn't a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that doesn't have that conviction. Okay, listen, Robbie. I was a member of the church for 40 years. I was a high priest. I was a seminary teacher. Don't tell me that there's not a member of the church who doesn't understand that. That's incorrect, Robbie. You're a member of the church. What? I don't understand how you could have been a member of the church. Well, because I don't talk in soft tones, and I'm not really friendly here on the show with you, Robbie. You don't understand that? that I don't pretend to be really good on the outside like a whited sepulcher, but I'm full of dead of dry bones. Let me tell you something. Robbie, do you believe? Wait, wait, Robbie. Do you believe you have to go to a temple and do endowments in order? I want to know if you believe you have to go to the temple and do endowments and receive your new and everlasting covenant to live with Heavenly Father. Wait, first of all, why are you Okay, that's not the question. Answer my question. Because the question is, you yell at your... It doesn't matter. Answer my question. <laughs> no, that, it doesn't. Why? Because the, you know that the question answered is going to prove that you are not a person who believes Christ's grace saves you and reunites you with Heavenly Father after this life. You see, Robbie, I've called your bluff and it got in my blood before you said two words. I can hear your lilting ding song approach, Robbie, and I understand how it works. Okay. And it makes me mad because that approach influences people. And the missionary knocks on the door. Christ, why would why? I want to know, Robbie? Answer my question about the temple. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you. I want to know about the question to the temple, and then I'll let you say what you want to say. That is an unanswerable question in the what you're presenting. Uh, I, what are you talking about, unanswerable? How are, now you're lying, Robbie. You wonder why I get upset. What are you talking about? Why don't you be real? Why don't you be honest? Why don't you say, yes, you've got to go to the temple. Yes, you have to do it in order to live with Heavenly Father again. Yes, you have to do it to be a God. Why don't you guys tell the truth? Why can't you tell the truth? I totally believe that God has a system to help people. Oh, nice way of putting it. Your system is exactly what I just described. Hold on, just a second. No, not just a second. Answer me honestly. Be an honest man, and you will see me calm down and like this. Hold on. I'll be just like this. Hold me. Okay, I'll be just like this. You be an honest man. But if you're not, I'm going to be in your kitchen like this, Robbie. Be honest with our audience, Robbie. Sean? Yeah. I say come follow me. Robbie, do you have to wear your garments every day to please God, to live with him after this life? I can hardly understand you. Yeah, of course you can. 
Robbie, you have to wear your garments every day in order to please God to live with him after this life. So what? So what if I were? Do you have to? I didn't say do you. I said do you have to? To please God to live with him after this life. You're turning things around. I'm not turning anything around. It's a direct question. Is that taught? If, if Christ has a method for me to be a happier person, should I not follow it? Christ does not bring that to you in terms of being happy, uh, Robbie. It's not in the Bible. It's a, it's a, a, a manipulation by men to get you to go into their temple. Robbie, answer the question yes or no. As a Mormon, do you have to wear your garments in order to please God and then live with him after this life? Yes or no? You're asking a question of me personally. As a church, not you. Okay. In the church, Robbie. For me personally. No, not you personally. Don't switch it back now. No. As the church, Robbie, the church, does the church teach that people who have gone to the temple have to wear their garments in order to please Heavenly Father so they can return to live with him after this life? Yes or no? So they have to, so they please, so they have to. Does it please Heavenly Father in order, and do you have to wear them? Do they say wear them every day of your life, Robbie, yes or no? And you have to to please the Father. You please the Father by doing his will. That's not what I asked, Robbie. Straight question. Do you have to wear garments in order to please God and live with him after this life? Yes or no? John? Yes or no, Robbie? It's contentious. I'll, I, now we're on the contentious road. If you answer the question honestly, you'll see me call right now. Yes or All right. Fun stuff. Take care, folks. This is really bizarre. And it's just going to keep feeling getting more bizarre. All right. Take care. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.